And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Fergus M. Borderwick to the program today for the second of our two-part interview. Fergus is a former journalist and now longtime historian. His books include The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government, Bound for Canaan, The Story of the Underground Railroad, and Killing the White Man's Indian, Reinventing the Native Americans at the End of the 20th Century. Today we conclude our conversation about his latest book, Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, which is published by Knopf. Fergus, I want to thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Book Talk to talk about Clan War. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. We mentioned using the word of the time outrages that the Klan were responsible for, but prior to the formation of the Klan proper, just a year after the end of the Civil War, there was a massacre in Memphis, and it becomes abundantly obvious the South will not accept formerly enslaved people as equal members of society. Yeah, the Memphis Massacre is truly one of the horrors of the early Reconstruction period. Well, freed people were beginning to assert themselves in Memphis as they were everywhere in the South. There were still federal troops present in Memphis. Some of them were Black troops, Black federal troops who had performed extremely well during the war. Nothing was as unpalatable to unreconstructed or unreconstructable Southern whites than the sight of armed African-Americans, and particularly armed African-Americans in the uniform of the federal government, federal army. There was a, an altercation on the streets of Memphis. Initially, it seemed insignificant. It needn't have exploded, but it did. And it very rapidly escalated into a physical battle between Black federal troops and white Memphis police officers, many of whom were Irish, as it happens, and then rapidly spread beyond that into uncontrolled mob violence on the part of whites in Memphis against all African Americans in Memphis. Mobs ravaged, burned Black homes burned Blacks alive, including utterly unspeakable and heartbreaking acts, including the burning alive a disabled young Black woman in her house. Blacks were shot dead. Many, many African Americans died on the streets. A few whites did. It was a, a white riot. It primarily demonstrated, as you said in, in the opening, that a great many whites were prepared to battle Reconstruction and to, prepared to commit heinous acts in order to prevent Black Americans from asserting themselves in freedom. Andrew Johnson could not have been a worse pick for someone to run the country after Lincoln's death. What ways did he try to ensure that Black people would not achieve full citizenship in our country? Johnson was never a Republican. He was never a forward-looking or, dare I say, a kind of progressive political figure. He saw his roots, his base, among the white yeoman farmers in the South. He came from the Knoxville area where there was very little slavery. He was not a friend to slavery because he didn't like slavery competing with white labor. But he was not a friend to or a respecter of Black Americans. He freed the few slaves he had in his, in his own name. But he had no interest, really, in furthering rights or a political role for Black Americans. He was deeply racist as an individual, as an individual. He did support the 13th Amendment that ended slavery, and that's as far as it went. Then he was done. He was done with Black Americans after that. 
he opposed the 14th Amendment. He opposed any extension of political rights to Black Americans. He opposed a forceful military policy in the South that would have protected Black Americans or white Republicans, for that matter, from the increasing violence of the Ku Klux Klan. He appointed military officers in the South where there were troops who were pretty friendly to white conservatives, white reactionaries, and not friendly to the protection of Blacks. He did not support in any meaningful way the prosecution of whites in the South who committed crimes against Blacks, including the most heinous crimes, including mass Ku Klux Klan violence as the years went on. He did his best to cultivate political support from white former Confederates in the South. He saw that as his future. He was a Democrat anyway, a pre-war Democrat. The Republican Party pretty nearly turned its back on him by about 1867-68. And of course, the radicals in Congress attempted to impeach him unsuccessfully, as we know. So he had no future in the Republican Party, and he didn't share many of its values either. But in the sphere of race, that I think his record is darkest. And so it's Tennessee. We have the legacy of the Fort Pillow Massacre, the Memphis Massacre, Andrew Johnson being from Tennessee and not supporting Reconstruction in any way. And then we have Pulaski, Tennessee. What evil started from there? The Ku Klux Klan was founded in Pulaski. Pulaski, as perhaps most of your, your listeners know or not, is about 80 miles south of Nashville. It's a large town, small city today. It's a very pleasant place. I was in Pulaski not very long ago. It's a very nice, pretty tidily kept town. But its one-time fame rested on the fact that the Ku Klux Klan was founded there in 1866. Now, to be fair, the founders, the original founders of the Klan, was a small group of young Confederate veterans, all of them educated. Virtually all of them had college educations. One or two were lawyers, one was a journalist, and so on. These, these were not louts and hoodlums. And they were casting about for something interesting to do to amuse themselves in this war-torn town. Pulaski had suffered during the war, had been a lot of burning. There was nothing much to occupy young men. So these fellows hit on the idea of establishing a fraternity. They discussed different kinds of names and came up with this term, Ku Klux Klan. Doesn't mean anything. Had no prior meaning. It didn't exist as any kind of organization before this. They might have picked anything. And in fact, one of the early Klansmen who wrote a history of the Klan mentioned some of the other names that were knocked around in the area as for young men's fraternities. And one of them was Guastiukas, another thing that means nothing. He said, well, if these early founders had called it the Guastiukas, the history of America might have been different because it's not very catchy. Well, Ku Klux Klan was a bit spooky. It was strange and it did catch on. Now, initially, these founders uh, would dress in crazy outfits, robes, yeah, strange caps, mustaches, cow's tails, and things like that, and pop up in odd places around town, strutting around and strumming banjos, apparently, more or less entertaining people. However, one of the other things they decided entertained them was scaring Black people, freed people. This initial group is not known to have done particular harm to people other than insulting and frightening them. However, within a few months, this embryonic clan was copied, 
or expanded into surrounding counties. And within about six, six months or so, former high-ranking Confederate officers meeting in Nashville had taken note of the Klan. They systematically transformed it. They essentially took it out of the hands of this group of amateurs, dare I say, in Pulaski. And they set about creating a terrorist organization with a political end. And that political end was to destroy the embryonic two-party system in the South by scaring people out of the brand new fragile Republican Party, and in particular, terrifying, seriously terrifying to the point of murder, African-Americans who were asserting themselves, not just as individuals, as free men and women, but beginning to assert themselves in public life, eventually as office holders. So what was born in Pulaski metastasized in the hands of others into a genuine, systematic, deliberate terrorist movement. He came up at the end of our last episode, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and while he wasn't a founder, he was definitely a leader. Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Memphis man, as you know, has often been alleged to have been the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. He was not. However, he was recruited very early on by the former Confederate officers, including men he served with in the war, as the first Grand Wizard. Why that? Because he had immense charisma as a often said brilliant wartime cavalry commander, maybe not as brilliant as his acolytes claim, but nonetheless a very talented cavalry commander. What's necessary to know about Forrest's background is that one, he was an immensely successful and wealthy pre-war slave trader. He made his fortune buying and selling men, women, and children in Memphis. At the beginning of the war, he entered the Confederate Army. He very rapidly uh, became a general. Uh, he was a natural natural soldier, it turns out. And he led his cavalry units during the war, often in a almost a semi-guerrilla fashion. He, he, he was particularly effective when he was on his own and sometimes raiding behind Union lines. He oversaw the Fort Pillow Massacre of 1864. Fort Pillow, as I imagine many of you are listeners would know, is a short distance north of Memphis. It was a federal fort captured from the Confederates early in the war, a federal fort on the Mississippi River. It was in 1864 occupied by a largely, not totally, but largely Black Union force. And Forrest was able to capture the fort from the rear, where it was not very well protected. And what ensued was a horrific massacre. It's the worst war crime perpetrated on American soil outside the Indian Wars. A very large proportion of the Black troops were killed on the spot. They were massacred. It wasn't a battle. They were massacred. There was a battle. The battle was lost. And once the federal troops had surrendered, the massacre ensued. Uh, their white officers were also massacred. Um, Forrest presided over that. Whether he ordered it or not, remains controversial. It's hard to believe that he did because he was a hands-on commander. But be that as it may, this is the man who became the first Grand Dragon of the Klan. And how did he serve the Klan then? What was this office of Grand Wizard? One, he was a charismatic figurehead for those who wanted to know what the Klan was and what it was about. Two, I'm quite convinced he served as it's one of several, but it, probably it's paramount, traveling organizer. He traveled nominally incognito as an agent for a Southern insurance company, traveled all over the South. Wherever he went, 
dens of the clan. A den would be 10, 15 members usually. Dens popped up, and soon after that, violence ensued. And I think, despite his later disclaimers, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He had a mandate to set up these cells, and he did that. Now, after that, the clan spread very rapidly without all its cells being organized by forest or other organizers. It metastasized in individual counties. There might be a county with four, five, six, seven, ten different dens, and they would fold one out of the other after the next, after the next. But Forrest was instrumental in turning the clan into what it became. By 1868, he withdrew to some extent from his clan activities. Forrest was wedded to the future of Tennessee. He was loyal to Tennessee. He wanted to see Tennessee redeemed. That was the word of the time by white supremacists, another word of the time. It's not an anachronism. It's the term that white reactionaries used to describe their desire to return to power, white supremacy. And when Tennessee was redeemed, when white conservatives and then reactionaries regained power in Tennessee, Forrest, to some extent, felt that his job with the Klan was done, and he moved into other areas to uh, try to attempt, not very successfully, to rebuild his personal fortune. The one thing he was successful at, and it must be said, was pioneering the use of prison labor in Tennessee, not so unlike the use of slave labor before the war. Most of us who've taken our American history courses know about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, but what were the Enforcement Acts? Yeah, the Enforcement Acts were pivotal, and certainly they were pivotal to the federal government's ability to crush the Klan, which it did under Grant. We know what the 14th Amendment was. It brought citizenship to formerly enslaved people and provided, on paper at least, all the privileges of citizenship, including presumably all the protections that the Constitution granted to American citizens, but which were not enforced in the South. I don't want to get too deep in the constitutional weeds here, but there was still, even after the war, a vigorous debate about what the rights were of the federal government versus those of the states. And it was still generally believed in the North, mostly, as well as in the South, that the enforcement of constitutional rights was within the orbit of the states, not the federal government. So the federal government had legal difficulty enforcing protections, say First Amendment protections in the South, which also enabled the Klan to ravage the Reconstruction world as they did, because, as we said earlier, courts, police would not enforce rights for Black people in the South. There was an increasing will in the North, in the Republican Party, led by the Republican radicals, Grant among them, to enforce constitutional rights for Black Americans. Those were increasingly seen as imperative, one, to ensuring their citizenship, two, their survival, three, their loyalty to the Republican Party, and therefore the future of the Republican Party in the South, because former slaves voted Republican. Okay, so the Enforcement Acts were a series of three pieces of legislation passed in 1871 by Congress, led by the radicals, they weren't passed without without a battle. Both Democrats and conservative Republicans in Washington fought them tooth and nail. And I write about this in my book. I go back and forth between what's happening on Capitol Hill and what's happening in the towns and hamlets of the South. These acts 
attempt and succeed finally in giving teeth to federal enforcement of the 14th Amendment in the South. And the third act, which is known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, was designed with very, very specifically to make the Klan's activities illegal, right down to uh, going on a public road uh, dressed, uh, dressed in a costume, invading a house, a private home, wearing a costume, wearing a hood, and many specifics like this. They also specifically empowered, the Enforcement Act specifically empowered President Grant to use the power of the federal government, the power of the presidency, to crack down on the Klan. He did two things, all according to the legislation. He legally suspended habeas corpus in northern South Carolina, which was at that time the worst epicenter of Klan activity and saturated with Klan violence. South Carolina, rather, was meant to serve as an example to the rest of the South. If Grant could break the Klan in South Carolina, he would break it anywhere. He suspended habeas corpus. He also, through his extremely active and effective attorney general, Amos Ackerman, who hailed from Georgia, as it happens, he was a Republican, he dispatched prosecutors into the South who were willing and able to prosecute the Klan. And he dispatched judges who were willing to try the Klan. That's the legal side of it. The other side was military. Grant sent fresh troops into the South, into particularly South Carolina, but not only there, in numbers sufficient to confront the Klan. And the troops that spearheaded that operation were <laughs> troops who belonged to the 7th Cavalry. Yes, you've, you know what happened at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Custer's regiment, the 7th Cavalry, was largely, not totally, eliminated killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. So the troops being sent into South Carolina in 1871 are, many of them, the same men who will wind up at the Little Bighorn. Was Custer commanding them in South Carolina? No, he was not. Custer was a conservative Democrat. He didn't support Reconstruction, and he spent this period primarily racing horses in Kentucky rather than leading his troops in South Carolina. But Sufficient troops were sent, and they were led by Major Lewis Merrill, a very dynamic and capable Union officer who had spent the Civil War chasing down Confederate guerrillas in Missouri, and therefore had experience in precisely the kind of warfare that was necessary to deal with the Klan in the South. And to make a long story short, Merrill broke the Klan. He infiltrated it with spies. By building from the base up, he found men willing to defect and to inform on men higher up in the Klan. Within months, he had an anatomy of how the Klan operated, who belonged to it, and who was leading it in that part of South Carolina. And once he began chasing down the members, uh, now the Klan won. They were used to terrorizing men, women, and children who were unarmed, but faced with the carbines of the 7th Cavalry, they caved. They were cowards, frankly. They were afraid of facing armed federal troops who would shoot them. Entire clans came in and surrendered. 5,000 clansmen were arrested as part of that campaign, and many others elsewhere in the South. But this was the primary illustration of federal power against the Klan. And once it was clear that the federal government was going to go after the Klan, it began to disintegrate. So that's how the Enforcement Acts operated in the field. Now, there's much more to be said. What happened after the Klan's apparent demise? Well, it may be called Klan War, but it's almost Klan battle because 
with the uh, ending of Reconstruction, with the election of Rutherford B. Hayes, the terror actions of the Klan just become public policy in the South. Yeah, that's true. That is the great tragedy. Along with the rise of the Klan in the South, I mean, there are a couple of other trends that have to be acknowledged. One was the political pressure in Southern states, especially where whites were in a significant majority, the recovery of political control in Southern states, such as Tennessee, by whites. Once whites had regained, conservative or reactionary whites had regained political control, the need to enforce what they wished by political action rather than terror. Did terror totally disappear? No, it didn't. But it radically diminished. And by 1876, every one of the former Confederate states was back in the hands of white conservatives. How much political capital did Grant have to expend to get all of the Republicans or enough Republicans on his side to prosecute this war against the Klan? A lot. The passage of the Third Enforcement Act was a very, very close thing. It seemed it was not going to pass. And I I tell this story in my book. It's quite dramatic. Grant himself got in a carriage. He rode up to Capitol Hill and he, one has to imagine him marching. He was a soldier after all, marching into the Capitol. And there's a room there allotted to the president. And he made clear, he met with men in Congress, Republicans, and said, I want this legislation. We must have it. So he put himself on the line. He put his prestige on the line. He put his presidential authority on the line. And he got it. And he got it. However, support for Reconstruction has been eroding in the North. And if you were to ask the question of, well, what happened to Reconstruction? Why did it, how did it end and, and did it fail? Well, the answer would have really have to be that it was ultimately betrayed or abandoned by Northern voters, by Northern Republican voters who were tired of the South's problems. They were tired of Black people's problems. They were tired of conflict. They wanted the Civil War in the past, and they lost a willingness to support the policies of Reconstruction. And a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment, and this isn't usually included as part of the passing of Reconstruction, was actually in 1874, Grant is still president in 74, which was that Democrats captured the House of Representatives. As you know, money bills originate in the House of Representatives. Once Democrats who opposed Reconstruction controlled the House, there would be no more appropriations for the military in the South or for prosecution of Klan crimes in the South. It's very expensive to hold court sessions. It's expensive to sustain prosecutors. No more money for it. So that ended two years before the 1876 election, which was really the capstone for the end of Reconstruction. On a more personal note, your dedication for the book is to Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne, and you say he's the bravest man you ever knew. Can you tell us about Mr. Hawthorne? I worked with Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne in the late 1960s in Lunenburg County, Virginia. And at the time, it was said that Lunenburg County, which is on the North Carolina line, it's in what's called Southside Virginia. It was said at the time that that was the deep south of Virginia. It was a very rural country, formerly a tobacco producing region and very economically very depressed with a fairly large minority black population at the time and intense Ku Klux Klan activity, very intense. The Klan was recruiting very widely in parts of Virginia at that time. 
1966-67. As I say, we're doing voter registration, Nathaniel Lee Hawthorne. He was a war veteran, a World War II veteran. He'd served in Italy with an artillery unit. He'd been under heavy fire, had been very badly wounded. He was on uh, disability. He was an educated man. And he, he threw his life into building the civil rights movement in that part of Virginia, particularly the NAACP, which was the organization most active there. And as they say, I worked with him. Usually he'd, he'd send me out with one or another of the local people to uh, register voters in the hinterland of the county. Hawthorne himself confronted the Ku Klux Klan of that era, of the 1960s. Personally, he walked into the middle of a Klan rally in Lunenburg County on the steps of the county courthouse. I saw it. I was with him. And by the skin of his teeth, he was not harmed. He was arrested that day and accused of a preposterous crime. He was pulled out of my car, actually, by the state police and arrested. It was a way of punishing him without letting him fall into the hands of the Klan. The state police, for their own reasons, didn't want him harmed by the Klan. It gets into the politics of the time and place more than your listeners are interested, I think. But he was an extremely brave individual, and I saw him do that more than more than once. And he wanted to demonstrate that Black people in that county were not cowed by the Klan, and he succeeded. Despite being in very, very ill health, he finally died a natural, if some, still somewhat premature death. With your experience in the civil rights era and then writing about America's history in the many ways that we've failed to live up to our promises over the past 250 so years, but also you've written about those who have fought tenaciously for progress, do you see signs of hope in our divided nation right now? Politically, I'm an optimist. Now, the United States has been through many, many crises in its long history. And it is a long history now. I mean, many of them are half forgotten, except by historians. The very founding itself of Congress, which I've written about back in uh, 1789, James Madison didn't know whether they'd actually get the constitutional government up and running. The crisis of the election of 1800, the nullification crisis of the 1830s, the many crises of the 1850s, the Civil War itself. I mean, one could list many, many more. And within my own memory, certainly the late 1960s, when it was believed by a great many Americans that the country was, it was exploding, but it was going to come apart at the seams. Or also within my memory, the McCarthy era and the brutal red hunting of the late 1940s, early 1950s, and the Great Depression of the 1930s. We've gotten through all these things in nearly all these instances. A great many Americans thought the country was finished. They thought democracy was finished. They thought elections were finished. They thought the country was falling into the hands of some utterly unredeemable faction that would destroy democracy forever. So if one looks at history, the United States has been a champion at pulling itself through dire times. And I agree with you. We're, we're in a very fraught moment right now. We, we see a, a dramatic and very disturbing rise in demagoguery in this country which can't be belittled, it's, it's significant, and a shockingly low rate of approval for our basic national institutions, including Congress and other institutions. And that's almost unique in American history. These have to be remedied, but I think it's very premature for us to throw up our hands and say, our ancestors sometimes did, the country is just finished. I think it requires Americans to recommit themselves to grassroots political work that benefits the institutions of the United States, that helps build those institutions, helps rebuild faith in those institutions, helps 
re-educate people about the importance of political process. That's not the sexy side of politics, but what's necessary to pass legislation, good legislation. Politics isn't just being on a soapbox mouthing slogans. And we have a great deal of that all across the political spectrum. But actually doing the hard work of democracy is a challenge and it's not adequately understood. I deeply hope we are seeing this, that there's a restoration of civics education for Americans and that the next generation will understand better what's at stake. Well, Fergus, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with us over the past couple of episodes. Thank you so much for sharing Clan War with us. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's been a great pleasure. Fergus M. Borderwick is the author of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, which is published by Knopf. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.